What makes a good drama? What advantages do human storytellers have over their AI counterparts? Where do ideas come from? And what do spiritual beliefs share with artists' faith in the creative process? Andrew Clavin has been nominated for the Mystery Writer of America's Edgar Award five times and successfully won twice. He's the author of several best-selling novels, including Don't Say a Word, filmed with Michael Douglas, True Crime, filmed by Clint Eastwood, and Empire of Lies. Clavin is currently writing a series of thrillers for young adults called The Homelanders. The first two novels in the series are The Last Thing I Remember and The Long Way Home. He's a contributing editor to City Journal and his essays have appeared in The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, and The Los Angeles Times. Andrew Clavin, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you. It's nice to be here. So your new book, The House of Love and Death, has just come out and you selected a passage to read for our listeners. Yeah, I, I thought I'd just read from the very opening of the book, which puts the story that I'm going to tell into action. It's a fireman arriving at a house in a gated community that's on fire and discovering that people inside, a family has died, but not from the fire. They've been murdered. It starts out, the burning mansion rose above him like a great beast of flame. The flames roared red from its high windows. They pranced and jabbered behind the picture pane on the ground floor. Above the lovely wooded lane, patches of the pale blue dawn caught the glow and turned to feverish pink. Swaths of the meridian, meanwhile, were smothered under the black smoke that flooded up out of the raging heart of the conflagration. Later, Guerrero would say he sensed death standing inside that burning house, sensed death standing like a hooded phantom, very still amidst the dancing fire. Lenny Guerrero was search and rescue truck 48, the first truck, a broad, strong, boyishly handsome man in his mid-thirties who was at the truck's side near the curb near the lawn. The light arrays from the truck and the nearby engine, engine 39, flashed scarlet and shadow over him as he worked to get himself game ready, strapping his air pack on, his mask on, his hood on, his helmet. Around him, there was movement, action everywhere. The pipeman was making the hydrant by the curb while the heel man kept the line clean behind him as the water brought the hose to light. The two-man entry team was already at the mansion door, one man hacking at the jam with an axe, the other working a halligan, trying to pry the whole structure free. Guerrero had often noticed, a lot of the guys noticed, how such moments, these moments just before you went in, could become bizarrely quiet, bizarrely slow and graceful and almost silent, beautiful even, like some kind of strange ballet without the music. Supposedly, it was because your brain was working so fast, the images and noises of the world couldn't keep up with it. That's what the captain said anyway. It was in that moment, that slow, quiet, graceful moment with the pipe man setting off the first blast of water as the door came free, as the flames exploded outward into the dawn light, as a second engine pulled up with its array leisurely turning and its sirens sounding weirdly far away. It was in that moment that he felt death like a phantom, standing in the house, waiting in there, waiting for him, Guerrero, to come and discover the work of his skeleton hands. Well, that's how it begins, and it begins with him discovering, as I say, a family that has been killed, but not by the fire. Yeah, so that mystery, and there are great poetic touches there, and you speak about, as I imagine, I've never had that experience of being a firefighter, and I it back to your detective who has kind of powers, Cameron Winter, a professor detective who has a sense about a strange habit of mind about crimes, but there must be something that takes over people who are working in these essential services like firefighting. It's almost like an act of faith. You know, you have to trust in something else to move you along. And I was wondering if you were drawing upon that when you're writing those scenes. Well, certainly. I mean, I spoke to firemen about how they do their jobs, of course, but also when I was a young man, I was a reporter and it was urgently important to me uh, as a guy who wanted to be a writer to see everything. And I remember once covering a, a burning house uh, and arriving before the firemen got there because we would do that to get pictures. And I actually ran into the house without thinking to see what it was like to be in a building. There was this sense of slowness and detachment that I remember very, very well, the sense that I was invulnerable somehow that I was separated from the actual scene of the fire. And I relied on that too. But Guerrero, the fireman himself, is a man of faith. And when he finds himself in that slow moment, that slow detached moment, he sinks into his faith as, as into a protective armor and it guides him through the horror that follows. Yes. And our minds are interesting because we're said to use only a portion of it. So we don't know what's happening. I think within the creative process or with any of these, you know, great physical feats where you have to summon bravery that you don't know where it comes from. It must be from outside yourself because I can't imagine that strength 
think can always just come from within ourselves. That that focus that you spoke about can slow time. You can change kind of physics. It, it's a really good point because I think that the modern sensibility and the, certainly the postmodern sensibility tells us that everything is self-referential, that if we have a certain feeling, it's because of our chemistry, it's because of our sexuality or urges that come within ourselves. But the older way of thinking is that we're in a relationship with a world that actually is reflected in our mind. And I think that older sensibility is probably closer to the truth. It explains a lot more. It makes a lot more sense of things. So as you say, as a writer, uh, every writer knows this, that he's not actually drawing so much from himself as some kind of literal inspiration, some kind of breathing into him that uh, connects him, his own experiences, his childhood experiences, life experiences, his mental experiences with something that is very real outside him. And what he's trying to do in, in art, I think, is communicate that experience to other people in the only way possible. You can't describe it. You can't put adjectives into it. You have to dramatize it or paint a picture of it or write a song about it. That's the way human beings communicate the experience of being human. Indeed. And I want to go into Cameron Winter's psychology and his past story, but just staying on this a little bit, speaking about summoning things from the past, voices from the past. There were touches of your book previous to this, a nonfiction book, The Truth and Beauty. There were a lot of poetic touches. You know, you have nods and direct uh, quotes. So how did how did you find there's always this kind of resonance between books? So how is that in conversation with that, that book? Well, it, it's really interesting. As you point out, Cameron Winter is a poetry professor, but he has a past, not just being a man of action, but also being a man who's done some fairly morally questionable things in service, as he believed, to his country. And so he's now trying to get past that. And he's trying to live out the beauty of the culture that has created him, these romantic poets that he loves in this moment in the history of the West when it confronted itself in a new way, a fresh way that was born out in the American Revolution, the French Revolution, and all this kind of tumult that went through the 18th and early 19th century. And so he's carrying within him a cultural idea that reflects off the world around him, which is kind of unwinding. It's kind of falling apart around him. And he finds this in, in the murders that that sort of entice him into investigating them. He doesn't know why he's drawn to certain murders, but they're murders that actually speak of chaos, that speak of disillusion, that speak of fall. And he wants to kind of go in there and find out who he's supposed to be in that environment. It's interesting that I only sort of realized after writing the first book, which is called When Christmas Comes, I only sort of realized how this was connected to what made me want to write in this genre to begin with. As a young man, like all young men, I was looking for role models, people that I could model my sense of manhood on. And I didn't have really anybody nearby that I really admired. And so I turned to literature and to movies looking for the idea of what a man should be. And at first I was very taken with tough guys, Hemingway and characters, Dashiell Hammett's Sam Spade from the Maltese Falcon and characters that Humphrey Bogart played on the screen. But I sort of noticed that each of them had a flaw and that there was a certain weakness to the kind of toughness that they portrayed, that it separated them from their responsibilities to the world. But when I read Raymond Chandler, that changed everything for me. Chandler wrote a series of novels about a guy named Philip Marlowe, a tough guy detective, and he was the best writer of the tough guy writers. And in the first page of The Big Sleep, his character, Philip Marlowe, sees a stained glass window with a knight rescuing a lady on it. And of course, it's not moving. It's just a stained glass window. And he says, if I had lived in this house, I would have had to climb up there and help him because he didn't look like he was getting anywhere. And so what Chandler was saying was that Marlowe had a knight inside him. He had an ideal of chivalry that he took into this terribly corrupt, terribly fallen world. And the way that Chandler put it in one of his essays was he said, down these mean streets, a man must go who is not himself mean, who is neither tarnished nor afraid. And that's where we get the phrase mean streets. And that, and I just thought, the minute I saw that, I thought, that's what I want to be like. That's who I want to be in my life. And so Cameron Winter is a sort of reflection, a sort of later adaptation of that idea. He's a guy who carries the culture into a place that's not only corrupt, like Chandler's LA, but it's actually falling apart. He's the modern America that seems to be coming apart at the seams to him. And how is he going to behave himself, knowing that he's not in a chivalrous ideal? He's in a very, very difficult period of history. And as you say, he struggles with things he's done in the past and this question of forgiveness. So it's either there's this backstory of things he's trying to resolve as well as the story, the mystery that he confronts. 
Right, exactly. He tells his own story in the past to a therapist he's going with. It's the same time I tell you the story of what's happening to him in the present. And so there's always this kind of back and forth between who he was and who he's trying to become and how he's trying to find. He's trying to find a person who's capable of love, really, as he keeps saying. He's alone. He's solitary. He's crushed by his solitude. He feels his solitude very deeply. And yet pain and difficulty of, of loving another person. And so that's the, the journey that he's on. Yeah, and your own journey has been different. I, you know, you're a person of faith, of the Christian faith that you had a later in life conversion. But I was wondering, you know, to explore character in storytelling and comes out of our lived experience, do you need to have present dilemmas and unresolved conflicts within yourself to flesh out well-crafted stories? I mean, what happens when you resolve those conflicts and find faith? Where do you find your drivers for your stories? It's a really good question because resolved questions don't actually make for good drama and they don't actually help people on their own journeys. You know, if you just tell people that you have all the answers, which I don't, then you're first of all lying to them and second of all, you're boring and it's just a, a lecture and propaganda that you're giving people. No, I want I wanted from the very beginning for Cameron Winter to be a person very uncertain about the nature of the metaphysical world. I found faith very, very late in life. And while it has been an incredible joy for me, a joyful journey, it remains a journey. You still are traveling. You don't suddenly think like, ah, now I've got it all figured out. So you still are aware of your own struggles. And the fact that it took me so long to come to a place where I could believe, I was 49 when I was baptized. And it meant that I went, I had gone down every stupid, wrong, obviously dishonest road. It was possible to go down. Uh, I was not somebody who converted at 19 and never changed my mind. I changed my mind a million times. And so I was aware of where all the dead ends. And that's really helpful because then at least, while I can't say to somebody, this is the answer, this is you know what you want, I can at least say, I know that this road ends here and this road ends there logically, morally, and emotionally. And that's been really helpful to me. I mean, I always compare, you use your character like a little bit of yeast because each character you're writing is different. They have different ways of talking, different ways of seeing the world, different, totally different opinions than yours. And it can't be that everyone whose opinion is different from yours is a bad person and everyone who agrees with you is a good person. That's not the way life works. So you have to just take a little bit of yourself to bring them to life in each case. And if you've had enough experiences I have of, of trying out different things, you can actually do that more easily and populate your work with much more different kinds of people. Yeah. And I think that in these times, having a spiritual grounding is something that it takes a bit of courage to, you know, proclaim that. I know there is a, a search for spirituality or mindfulness, which takes on many different forms. But at, at the same time, I think people are like worshiping like big tech, which I know was <laughs> this. <laughs> yes. Asking AI, you know, is there a God? And, you know, which I tried to do recently. He said, no, that's why they call it artificial intelligence. So, yeah. And uh, speaking of like the big tech, I want to stay, of course, on House and Love and Death. But in your previous novel, A Strange Habit of Mind, you're focusing then on big tech and, you know, some of the problems. We, we love the new technologies, but I personally believe we do need governance. We need to have writers and uh, people from the humanities taking part, not just the technologists yeah. have one objective. So what are your reflections on that? And how did you work it out within fiction to discuss some of those issues? Well, I think the question that we in some ways stopped asking or started to allow other people to ask and answer for us is what is it? What is a person? What is a man? What is a woman? What is their goal from the day they're born to the day they die? What's the purpose of being human? And when I listen to people talk about AI, especially the techies who talk about AI, they sound to me like they're talking complete nonsense. They say, well, one day AI will be a human. And you think, well, first of all, they have, it has no flesh. So how can it be human? That's what we are. We're something that grows old, that rots, that dies, that feels, that becomes excited, that becomes ill, that feels good and has the, the fact that they're feeling healthy affects their entire way of looking at the world. You know, what does it mean to be human? It's not to just have a lot of information in your head. The way that artificial intelligence thinks is not the way human beings think. And so there, there comes a point where people, especially in a world where people can become so powerful and so rich 
and so detached from the ordinary risks and dangers of a normal human being's life that they begin to conceive of themselves as more powerful than other people, more important than other people, wiser than other people, when all of the results that they produce seem to be disastrous. So that you think they'd get a clue that actually, no, they're not any wiser than anyone else. That's a, it's a real danger that we face when our machinery, you know, you can go on to Google, for example, and they will curate the answer to your question. And it never occurs to them to say, who am I? to curate the answer to your question. Why don't I just let the machine speak as it would speak, you know, and just pick out things at random or according to what the most popular thing is or whatever it is. But instead, no, they actually guide you and guide your thoughts and guide your answers. And that really raises this question, who are they? Who do they think they are? that they are there to guide you. You know, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, a man who has a very, very high IQ. And I said to him, you know, a mother with a baby at her breast knows something that you will never know. And that's important to remember when you're talking to someone who cleans the bathrooms at the airport or sweeps the street or builds furniture or writes books or, you know, is president of the United States. The lived experience is limited. Your lived experience is limited. It's not something that you can make all kinds of large assumptions from, but it is a kind of knowledge that other people don't have. And I think that's the kind of thing I was struggling with in the previous novel, A Strange Habit of Mind, is a guy who basically runs a kind of Twitter-like platform, uh, you know, a social media platform, and starts to control what people hear and what they think, and then moves from that to trying to control people's lives in other dangerous ways. And and Cameron Winter and he sort of get into this massive battle between the two of them, a battle of wits, to figure out uh, what kind of idea of the human being is going to survive. So when you talk, you know, you had a wonderful, that's a wonderful story by going to AI and asking if, if there's a God, because the thing is, you, what you first have to ask is, what am I here for? Where am I going to get the kinds of answers that I need that are going to make my life joyful, by which I mean full of gusto. I don't mean happy, like a face with a big smile on it. I mean, what is going to make my life a vital life full of energy and joy at its deepest level? And if you don't ask yourself that question first, going to AI and asking is not going to get you very far. Indeed, it's important to ask. I hope you don't mind going on to this subject because I think yeah. AI, the future of humanity are like important questions. And yes. AI, all the different technologies, the big data and, and all of these things. And some people are really excited when they talk about, you know, post-humanity. Oh, it's great. We will no longer be human. We'll be better than human. But I feel there's this old uh, saying, follow me, said the wise man as he walked behind. I think just because it's faster, <laughs> access to everything, is that intelligence? I mean, maybe it's intelligence, but is it consciousness? Is it actually it produced the most intelligent result just because it races. <laughs> it can do it so quick. No, it's not doing what we're doing. It, it, it is basically following algorithms to produce the next result, whereas people can be irrational and have acts of genius that come out of their irrationality. Uh, they can check, come up with incredibly stupid ideas and then see that reality has defied their notions and changed their minds. They can do all kinds of things that AI is never probably going to be able to do, although it's going to be able to do wonderful things on its own if it doesn't have a human master in the end, it's going to become destructive. The idea of post-humanity, if you just think about it, is where you always get, if you have a materialist mindset, by which I mean a mindset that all there is stuff, all I am is a skin puppet with a chemistry set inside, you always are going to end up worshiping death. It, it happens, it is an automatic iron rule of life. You know, in the Bible, there's a line, I put before you life and death, choose life. And I think when you start to say, oh, I'm looking forward to post-humanity, what you're saying is you're looking forward to death. You're looking forward to a world of death, a world of non-growth, a world of non-flesh, a world of non-communications in all the myriad ways that we communicate. I mean, just us looking at one another, even though we're far apart, we see a million things in one another. You know, you can tell whether a person has kindness, whether a person has compassion, whether a person has any depth at all. You can see that in their face when they sit down in front of you in the first moment. And I don't think something that just reads your face is going to be able to do that. I don't know, ultimately, whether we'll be able to create human beings, but AI is not a human being. And to look forward to a post-humanity, again, is to look forward to death. And I look forward to life. I actually believe that life is what life is all about. And I think the greater, you know, this is the promise of the Christian Bible is I want you to have life in abundance. I want you to have abundant life. And that to me seems like a goal worth having rather than a machine that does a chore better than I can.
Yes. And to go back to your book, House of Love and Death, I think that we also have to appreciate the ends of things. As a storyteller, you know that the end is what gives the whole journey meaning. And if it was just this endless story, it's almost like torture. You know, even like an unending bliss, we can appreciate it unless we have, I feel, a, we don't want suffering, but a certain something to compare it with that we appreciate where we have arrived at. You know, I've always thought it's a really good point there because I've always felt that people's vision of heaven is incredibly boring. You know, you sit there and just sing or worship or whatever. But when you look at your life, where does the joy come from? It comes from growing. It comes from changing. It comes from finding out something, having something happen to you that never happened before. And I think that it's very encouraging to me that if you are growing towards something infinite, there's no end to that journey. You can always become better and more and uh, life can become more abundant. And yeah, you don't want to say, and this bothers me a great deal because you know I have a podcast and I sometimes will make a statement about the meaning of something. And I'll get letters from people saying, no, the meaning is this, you know, this is what it is. And I think, well, you know, stay loose, you know, let, let yourself be wrong. Let yourself question all your assumptions. I do that all the time. I wake up and I think like maybe everything I think is wrong. And, you know, you do that less as you get older, but you don't stop doing it or you stop growing. And I think that those are the kinds of things, you know, when you looked forward to the future, I'm not against AI. I'm not against technology. I'm not against enhanced you know, we all have enhanced bodies. You wear glasses. I wear glasses. That enhances your body. But you want to enhance yourself in such a way that you are following your humanity to the next step. There's no reason that tools can't improve your humanity. But to go beyond your humanity or away from your humanity is a mistake. And so until we ask ourselves these central basic questions, what am I? What am I doing here? How can we know whether we should use a machine or not? Because there's always going to be some billionaire idiot who thinks he's the smartest person on earth telling us we've got to implant this thing in our brain or we're going to be less than the guy next to us. Well, I'm sure people with very, very high IQs who are deficient in other ways, deficient in compassion. I mean, I, I, I've met a million mothers and homemakers who know more about love and compassion and, and the things that are necessary to make life than some tech genius who can't feel anything because he's autistic, you know? So if you tell me, oh, you're going to put something in my head and it's going to give me a higher IQ, that's enticing. But what's it going to take away from me? Until I know what I am and what I'm supposed to be and what my project is, how can I know whether I should use a machine on my body or not? Yes. And so you mentioned, of course, your podcast where you give your opinions. It feels to me like your fiction is a counterpoint for you to, say, explore difference, explore doubt. Is that how it feels for you? Absolutely. You know, it's obviously we all have opinions. We all have outlooks on the day's news and all this stuff. But none of it is definitive. None of it ends the story. And a story is, a, is full of people like life searching for things. It's also like life can be interpreted different ways. Your story, unless you're telling a parable or an allegory, your story usually has myriad meanings and some of them contradictory, just like life. The way I think about it is that it's like when you look at an object, like the, the men looking at the elephant, you know, you look at different sides of the object until finally you get a more three-dimensional, multi-dimensional view. And I feel the same way about a story. A story can be interpreted, but a great story can be interpreted different ways because you're looking at it from different angles. And there might be wrong interpretations, but there might be many correct interpretations. And so I'm not looking for, I'm not telling allegories. I'm trying to communicate a vision of life. I'm trying to communicate what I've seen of life to you. You know, that to me is what art is. It is the communication of the internal experience of being human. You know, I always point out, even if you're talking to an athlete who's not very articulate and he just pitched a perfect game and you say, well, how do you feel, champ? You know, he's going to start to use a metaphor. He's going to say, well, it's like Christmas morning or, you know, or it's indescribable. And so what a story is, is an attempt to describe the indescribable, which is what it's like to be here. Because, you know, I know it's hard. Hard to convince anybody of this nowadays, but life isn't actually about, you know, how many likes you get on your social media. It's not about money. It's not about how many different people you sleep with. It's really about the experience of being here and how deep and rich and joyful it can be and whether it is deep and rich and joyful enough today that you don't want to be better tomorrow. Yeah. And I think that the arts are really a place where we can do that and we can learn how to, to live, you know, better, more fulfilling lives. Perhaps maybe that's idealistic or to love, no. to appreciate better the moments that we have within this finite life that we have. 
Absolutely. I don't think it's idealistic at all to say, I mean, I love the arts, but in order for them to enrich your life, you have to let them enrich your life. You know, a lot of people, especially young people ask me all the time, are, are video games and art? And I say there are video games I have seen myself that are definitely works of art, but they're not works of art if you just sit there and play them for eight hours and you're brain dead and you're smoking dope and you feel relationships in your life. You have to engage with the beauty of what the creator has done. Just like you do in life, you have to engage with the beauty of what the creator has done and try to understand yourself and your place in that pattern. And I think that then the great novels, even great novels that you disagree with entirely, even the philosophy you disagree with entirely, then they can actually get inside you and make you larger than you were. I do want to go into that video gamification of the film industry. We know you've had your screenplays or you're based on your novel made into wonderful films. I think that's how I first uh, was introduced to your work. But, you know, just staying on this, I believe this is your The House of Love and Death is your third novel in the Cameron Winter yes. series? Yes. So you're speaking about who am I? Why am I here? What kind of questions does he, what kind of answers does he get to, if you can disclose some of that? Well, well, I can describe it a little bit. I've just finished the fourth novel, which will be out like a year from now. And it's a a turning point in the series, which I'm hoping will go about 10 books. And it's a turning point because he does get to a very core insight about himself. But what he's looking for the feeling man. He is looking for the man who has been cut off because of heartbreak and because of the way he was raised and because of the choices that he made. And now he has become some, somewhat cold-blooded and, and he's alone. And so he's he wants not to be alone. It's not good for the man to be alone. And he wants to ignite that feeling self that we all have. And I think we all protect. We all sort of store it away deep inside ourselves to protect it from the pain of of living. And that's kind of what he's looking at. And so he's exploring some very big questions as he does that, because he did work for the government. He did do some very wicked things. He's a patriot and he believed in what he was doing. But of course, being a patriot is a very complicated thing because sometimes your country does the wrong thing. And sometimes the people running your country are buffoons and you have to still keep this idea in your mind. So he's exploring all of that. And each mystery that he's drawn into is at once an actual mystery, but also kind of feeds into what he's thinking about because he doesn't have to follow these mysteries. He's drawn into them. He's not somebody who people come to. He's not Sherlock Holmes. No, there's no knock at the door and, oh, Mr. Winter, I have a problem. He just sees things in the newspaper and thinks there's something about that that I need to fix, that I need to make better. And as he does that, he starts to learn what it is inside himself that the story appeals to. And speaking of heroic figures, you had mentioned before, Raymond Chandler writing about Christopher Marlowe. So you've had your books, True Crime and Don't Say a Word, adapted to notable adaptations. You've written screenplays. I mean, I can't think of, these are very heroic figures, Clint Eastwood, Michael Douglas. Tell us about that experience. Well, well, the movie business, you know, I never wanted to be in the movies. I, I am the only person I've ever met who a producer once had read one of my books and said to me, I'll pay you to write any screenplay you want. And I said, I don't want to do that. You know, I don't want to be in the movie. But like the look, I still can remember the look on her face because no one said that to her before. But I was drawn into it. And it was a very interesting experience because I love movies, but the writer is not the main person who makes the movie. The director is really the main person who makes the movie. And I'm not comfortable with that. I like my godlike perch of creating an entire story on my own. So it was a very famous and I believe great crime writer named James M. Cain, who wrote The Postman Always Rings Twice and Double Indemnity, books that were made into fantastic movies, but were also fantastic books. And somebody once said to him toward the end of his life, how do you feel about what Hollywood did to your books? And he said, Hollywood did nothing to my books. They're right there on the shelf. And and I feel kind of the same way. I feel like I made a work, Clint Eastwood made a work. They're two different works. And obviously they're connected and they're you know, it's always a, an amazing thing when you see a famous actor embody some character that you invented in your mind, but it's not the same. It's not the same character. And so anyone who goes to the movie, I hope will be inspired to read my book, but he's going to find them to be two very different works. And the other thing is that Hollywood is far more restricted 
than publishing. It's very hard to get a movie made. They're spending tens and sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars. A lot of people in the chain to say, no, you can't say that because the audience won't like it. There are some people in the publishing chain who do that more and more, I'm, I'm sorry to say, but I've always ignored them and I've always fought with them. And I've always said, no, I will not make that change or I will make this change according to whether it was expressing my personal vision, because I believe that's what I'm here to do. And so while I was thrilled and delighted to see famous actors make my books into movies, there was a certain detachment from it for me. For me, the book, I love books. I love novels and I love reading. And for me, it was always the book that had primacy and always the that was the most important thing about it. I was fortunate in a funny way in Hollywood in that I got to work in Hollywood, but I never became part of Hollywood. You know, people liked what I did. And so they would call me up and say, would you write the script? And I would say, yes. And I'd write the script and hit it in. And then I would pay no more attention to it. I'm sure I could have had a, a much more rich Hollywood career in every sense of the word if I had participated more. But I was never, it never appealed to me. The uh, culture of it never appealed to me. But that's interesting. Yeah. And we've seen with the recent strike, just how, you know, writers and the and actors and, and others involved, how they're feeling sidelined. And also a, a part of that is uh, to do with technology as well. You know, these plots can be generated. Yes. And, some, and, and they're right. Some of them can be, you know, that, that's on the writers. They should come up with better plots. Andrew Clavin is a versatile writer and creator. His ability to write in different genres has allowed him to appeal to a broad audience. His way of speaking and carrying himself provides a perspective that resonates with all audiences. I find him to be politically and spiritually aware of the injustices of the world, technology advances, and environmental challenges we are facing in our society as a whole. However, his perspective shifts and reminds us to perceive humanity as a raw, unique, and beautiful imperfection to experience the joy of what it truly means to be human. In this episode, he provides some insight of his inspiration from other writers and his past experiences as a reporter. From looking for a male figure to look up to in his younger years, like Chandler, to involving himself in a situation that was quite dangerous just to feel what it was like to live through that. Clavin connects his creative work to the experience of being human by dramatizing and painting a picture through his books to communicate with his readers. I admire his use of words because they captivate you. Clavin is recognized for his storytelling skills, compelling plots, complex characters, and well-crafted narratives. He captivates you as a reader because he makes you think deeply. He explains that humans grow, change, leave things behind, learn something new, and do inexplicable things. So how do human beings survive situations like that? That's where his inspiration for his narratives come from, and what makes life as a human so fascinating to him, providing different perspectives that resonate with his audience. And now we're back to the conversation. You know, the thing is, this is going to happen. You know, AI is going to be a part of our creative lives. And I'm fine with that. I don't think that AI can do what I do. I don't think it'll ever be able to do what I do because I'll be able to take what it does and modify it in ways that it'll never be able to take what I do and make it any better. So I think that because I'm a human being and that's what art is about, art is about human beings. So I feel for the people who are still screenwriters, because I don't really do that work that much anymore. I feel for them, but at the same time, I feel like they should live up to the challenge. And I'm a member of the Writers Guild, so when they go on strike, my heart is always kind of with them. And at the same time, I know the producers are, are just terrible people that would kill their mothers for an extra nickel, you know? So it's kind of easy to side with the writers. But I think that business is going to change. It has changed. And and I think writers should be treated fairly in that, but they shouldn't try to stop the future because they're not going to be able to do it. Yeah, I'm sure there's always going to be people who are going to use those technologies and hopefully see that maybe just as a starting point. But you could improv, actors could be improving then on top of it or something else. It's not the end product. But, you know, I was glad to see a little bit of solidarity just because it points a way forward to the way other people's jobs, but they're coming for other people's jobs too. They <laughs> are. No, there's no question. We have yeah. the ranks. Sorry to get on that tangent, but I do, do think it's important and it has implications. We have to apply governance to it. We can see how it's been used to affect, we could go a little bit political now, it's, it's influence elections. We have to understand its powers and in order to seize the opportunities. You know, one of the things that's really interesting about elections is that the old voting machines, where you pushed a button and pulled a lever, worked better than the modern computing machines and have less of a chance of being hacked or manipulated. Even to be accused of that is much more difficult. I make that point only to say that 
not everything that has lights and blinks and, and works faster is better than old ways. There's some things that are just better. We're just as good as they were going to get, you know? And I think we should remember that going forward, that there's always someone making money off the latest development, the latest medicine, the latest uh, machine, but that doesn't mean it's good. And when the money and the politics get combined, which they always do, there have to be people who stand apart and say, wait a minute, let's just take a look at this. Nowadays, this was not true when I was a kid. Nowadays, a lot of conspiracy theories turn out to be true. And that's because the people in power and the people who are wealthy are so connected. And this is not a question of right or left. It's just a question of power and money. They're so connected that they're so distant from the ordinary guy and girl that they need to be checked by people. It, it's really interesting to watch, for instance, Elon Musk's taken over Twitter, and suddenly the government is investigating him from every possible angle. And before, he was their hero. He was going to bring electric cars. He was going to take us to Mars. It was going to be great. And now suddenly he's being investigated all over the place simply because he lets other people speak. He just doesn't let the mainstream people speak. That's bad. You know, I mean, we should all, all be in solidarity, right and left. We should be in solidarity on the idea that people have a right to speak and be heard, even when they say things we don't like. And so these are the things that I see as dangers going forward is that we can all speak. We should all speak and we should listen to everybody. And I know there's a lot of hateful people out there and I, it distresses me, but I, I can take them. I would rather have them on board than have people in power silence people because people in power there's only two kinds of speech. There's free speech and speech controlled by the powerful. And that's, and so what I want is free speech. I want everyone to speak and let the best ideas win, not what the powerful say should be the ideas out there, because that doesn't work out very well. We've tried that already. Yes. And I think that it also is incumbent on us to try to hold on to a healthy fourth estate. I mean, I love to see the space where more people have voices. At the same time, a lot of people just don't have the bandwidth to read everything, to see that all sides of a situation. So they just see what will come in and if they're fed in their inbox or whatever. So, I mean, I feel like we should give more support or make a landscape where it's possible because journalism, the long form journalism certainly is dying out. I remember printed newspapers when this was something you could sit with an idea and you could get a kind of complexity with it. You have to work hard for that in this crowded space. You do. You absolutely do. You have to. And, and that's what people should be taught. They shouldn't be taught what's right or wrong, but how to gather the information. I mean, obviously, we all have to know what's right and wrong, but they should be able to gather information so they can make informed decisions. It's amazing the garbage that comes over social media. It is amazing that people dedicate themselves to lying to you and making fake pictures of things. I, I don't even understand that mindset, why you would want to wake up in the morning and lie to someone else. But people do. People are, are broken and crazy and sinful, and they do these terrible things. It would really, really help us a lot if the people that we elect to run the country and the people who have the most powerful newspapers and news outlets in the country would stop lying. That would really help. Then I wouldn't have to go to some weirdo and say, is this conspiracy theorist, is he possibly right? If the people at the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal were actually doing the investigative work to find out the truth instead of selling a point of view, which is I'm afraid what they've started doing now. And that's a change. Journalism was better in the 1980s, I would say, when people questioned each other and really said, you know, like, I, I was a reporter for a brief period of time, and I remember guys with totally opposite politics from mine who would question me about whether I was too far on their side as I wrote reports things, and we would get in arguments about it and try to get to the truth. What are the two sides of the story? I think that has disappeared. I know it's disappeared because I know people have been fired from the New York Times for disagreeing with the corporate idea. And I think that we really have to get back to the idea that there's such a thing as facts and truth, and the powerful should not be solely in control of what we hear and see. Now, in Europe, they have just, European Union has just introduced fines to large media companies for, you know, to, to ferret out untruths that have been on their platforms, making them responsible for that. Do you think that is the correct pathway? Do you see that perhaps coming to America? You know, we have the First Amendment here, which they don't have over there, and it's a, a great big difference. What I would say is it really is going to begin with people who are committed to telling the truth fairly. It's going to begin with that because... Right now, the New York Times has an amazing reporting power, more reporting power than most other outlets. But they're so slanted at this point that 
I, I don't know what to believe anymore. When I started doing my podcast about eight years ago, I would wake up in the morning, I'd read the New York Times for the left-wing point of view, I'd read the Wall Street Journal for the right-wing point of view, but I knew the facts. I had the facts. Now that's not true anymore. I've got to read five times as much to just so I feel confident that I'm not saying something that is unfactual. You know, it doesn't not I'm not talking about my opinion before I even get to my opinion. I have to know what actually happened. And so I don't think we're going to be able, I hope we won't be able to regulate speech, but I do think that powerful outlets committed to getting the facts could rise up and undermine. I think it's happening already, frankly. I think it's happening in Substack. It's happening in all these smaller outlets may rise up and replace these antiquated corporate entities, which are dedicated to corporate ideas and corporate principles and corporate profit. And I think they can be replaced by people like Barry Weiss on Substack and people like what Musk is trying to turn X into. He's doing a pretty good job fumbling along, but he's finding his way. When we get to that point where we can all kind of, what's the word? We'll sort of all do it together. We'll say, this doesn't make sense. Here's why. Here's my area of expertise. And I'm questioning this. Those things are really important. And I think maybe an organic method of finding the truth will, would be better than a government a guided one. Yes. And this also requires some changes. I feel like we need to, of course, teach uh, critical thinking to young people. It has to start like quite young because you have to have attentive readers to have an audience for this, that you speak about this transformation. I think some change to the algorithm. So it doesn't always incentivize, say, you know, aggressive speech and that gets the most likes, as you say, which seems like kindness should, but it doesn't. No, it never has. Yeah, so those kind of changes to speak about those changes and maybe about your own formation as a reader and a writer. What was your birth as a writer and a reader? Well, you know, it's interesting. When I was in, in university, some of the ideas that have now taken over the university, that have now monopolized the university, were just kind of filtering up. Among them, an idea that was then called relativism, the idea that, as Hamlet said, nothing is either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. So you may think because you are an American, you may think this is right, but somebody in another country thinks something else is right. Who is to say it would be bigotry, it would be prejudice, it would be privilege for you to declare that your way of looking at things is right and their way is wrong. And you're just a kid when you're in college, you don't know anything. And when you don't know anything, you have more of a tendency to want to have absolute certainty about things. It's only as you get older and wiser that you start to be able to live in a grayer world. But that just didn't sound right to me. You know, I, all the smartest people were saying it, and yet it didn't quite sound true that good and bad were wholly relative and wholly constructed by social events and social mores. And one day when I was 19 years old, I read Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. And it's about a guy who decides that he he's a superior person and therefore should be able to commit a murder without any kind of moral feedback. And in committing a murder, he has to commit two murders. And one of them is of a retarded woman, a woman who is mentally defective. And he's, he kills her with an ax. And I read that scene and I thought, there there is no world, there is no culture, there is no place where this is anything but an evil act. And I'm reading this work of fiction, which is about the question of good and evil and whether it's an objective truth or not. But I thought there is an argument that gets you to a place to hit a woman with a blighted mind in the head with an axe is okay, is a wrong argument. That should be a hint that your argument is incorrect and you should go back and make a better argument. And the first years of my career and my life and my writing life, my older books are about the question of like, well, okay, we know that some things are good and some things are bad, but how do we know? And how can that be true? And what do they stand on? If they stand on the shifting sands of consciousness, how can we ever be sure of what's real and what's not real, what's good and what's bad? Why isn't it? Why would somebody say, oh, you know, you should not abort your child because it's a child and it has a right to its life. Is that a good argument or a bad argument? How can we know? And then I had a turning point. I wrote a novel that was the novel that Clint Eastwood made into a film called True Crime. And it opens with a man on death row and he's having a dream and he wakes up from this dream and he says to himself, how can you know whether you're, it's your dream that's real or whether it's reality that's real? And the next line is, you know. And the point is because he's facing death, 
He knows which is the reality and which is not. And that was a turning point for me because I just thought I'm not going to follow this clearly false doctrine into this morass of confusion. And that changed my writing life and it changed the tenor of my books and it changed the tenor of my life. It's what eventually made me believe in God and ultimately in Christ, the Christian God, Christian version of God, was the sense that, okay, I, I know one thing, the only leap of faith I ever took, everything else was logic, but the one leap of faith that I cannot prove to be true and yet I know it to be true is that it is better to give a beggar bread than it is to torture a child to death. That's what I know. I know this for a fact. This is my truth that is self-evidence. It's what's called an axiom. It's the unprovable truth on which everything else stands. Once you know that, you have to start asking yourself, well, if something can be morally good and something else can be morally bad, there must be an ultimate moral goodness somewhere. And so once I began to allow myself to think that, because it went against, as you said at the opening of our conversation, you said that goes against the default position of our society. Once you have the courage to say that, once you know that you're going to lose readers and lose money and lose career points for saying those things, and you face that, things start to make a lot more sense. They become a lot more human, We're talking about being human. And you start to think, ah, there's something that humans perceive that's true. In the same way I know that if I walk north, I'll get to Canada every single time. And if I walk south, I'll get you know to Florida every single time. You know that certain things are just wrong. And if your philosophy has led you to go out on campus and protest in defense of what's wrong and against what's right, change your mind because that will lead you into evil. And so that that is a, a big point that reading Dostoevsky and saying, wait, I, I can't prove that there's a good and bad, but I know that there's a good and bad. That was a real turning point in my life. And as a writer, especially. Yes. And so both the Dostoevsky Crime and Punishment and True Crime, your novel, they both hint at flaws in the justice system and in our own internal logic. So how would you go about, I guess, just focusing particularly on the U.S., improving a justice system so that those kind of failures of justice don't take place, like a man falsely? Well, I, I believe in reform rather than revolution. And the reason I don't believe in revolution is because it's illogical. Everything that you know is good and everything that has happened to you that's good comes out of the society that you're in. This is why Socrates allowed himself to be killed by Athens because he knew Athens had made him everything that he was and essentially had a right to declare him a bad guy, even though he wasn't, even though they were wrong. And what I feel is it cannot be, it, it certainly is true that we can convict people wrongly. Uh, we can convict people out of prejudice. We can do all kinds of things, but it can't be true that people should be allowed to roam the streets hurting other people. That can't be true. So we need to be able to fix things. And the reason I'm a reformer as opposed to revolutionary is because I know there's no perfect world. I believe that a human being should be free. I believe that a human being should be free to choose what is the life he wants, but his freedom has to stop somewhere and it stops with doing harm to other people. And that doing harm to other people is not having an opinion that makes them feel bad. It's not disliking them. Doing harm to other people is punching them in the face and taking their wallet. That's doing harm to other people. And when people punch you, you have a right to bring them to justice. And there's no, and they have lost their right not to be brought to justice. They have lost their right to the freedom that we enjoy by not hurting each other. And so I begin there. And what are the things that I want to punish people for? And how do I want to punish them? And what makes sense to punish them? And those are conversations that can always be had. But when you have some idiot come along, and I'd just be blunt and say, defund the police. My question is, do you not know what people are? Do you not know what it's like to have somebody hurt you physically? And the thing that gets me about this is it always comes down to women because women are the ones who always get hurt in the end. You know? It's like if, if you're a, a six foot five guy and you own a, a gun and you know, you're know you like a, a hard character, I can understand why you think it might be fine to defund the police. But if you're walking down a dark street at night and you're five foot four and weigh 120 pounds, not so much. You know, I think that if we are not protecting one another through the law, the reason you have a society, the only reason to give up any of your freedom to a government is so you take the revenge. You committed a crime against me, and now I committed a crime against you, and you replace it with a justice system. And when that justice system stops to protecting the innocent from the criminal, that justice system is broken. Our justice system right now is broken when people are not in some of our major cities being punished for the crimes they commit. So I'm willing to talk about all kinds of ways to reform that justice system. But one of them is not that it doesn't bring criminals to justice. That is what it is there to do. 
And so I actually, speaking about protecting ourselves from future outcomes, you know, this year, 2023 has been the warmest on record. And I don't know if you could just tell us about your reflections on climate change and the kind of world we're leaving for the next generation. You know, I, I'm not in a panic about climate change. I don't think it's an existential threat. And if it's an existential threat, I don't think we can do one single thing about it. We're not going to go back to living in caves. We're going to be a technological people. That is what people are, you know, to make tools and use tools. I mean, remember, the Great Lakes used to be glaciers. So climate changes. We know it changes in drastic ways and sometimes changes very, very quickly. I'm not panicked about it, but I'm always happy for there to be cleaner forms of energy and cleaner ways of doing things. And so my feeling about this is all the things that they're talking about are things that make politicians sound and look good, but actually produce bad outcomes. So for instance, a, a good example is Germany shutting down their nuclear power plants. One of the stupidest things any culture has ever done. Nuclear power is one of the safest, cleanest ways of creating energy. But there was an earthquake in Japan and a nuclear reactor broke and very few people actually were harmed by it. It, it just was scary. So people uh, panicked. So because I'm a Christian, I believe one day there'll be an, an end time and Jesus will come again. But when a guy comes on TV and says, send me 20 bucks and I'll make Jesus come faster, that's when I get suspicious. Okay. So in the same way, I believe that we should take care of the earth and look for cleaner technologies and look for ways to do the things that we want done in the clean possible ways. When a guy comes on and says, give me the power to control the fossil fuel industry, give me the power to decree that electric vehicles will be subsidized by the government. I get suspicious because I know that money is going to his friends and I know it's actually not making the climate any cleaner. So panic is always a mistake. And if you'll notice, there are always powerful people trying to get you to panic. And why do they want to get you to panic? Because when you panic, you give up your freedom. You say, yes, oh, powerful one, please save me from this terrible crisis that we're in, whether it's COVID or whether it's climate or whether it's racism, you know, it's a, it's an emergency. It's not an emergency. I'm, I'm sure of this. I'm actually, unlike most of the people who spout off about the climate, I'm actually quite well read on the science on this, you know, and it's actually the thing that we're going to have to deal with as we go forward and tend our garden and tend to our earth as of course we should. But I think the way to do it is through smarter technology. I remember Los Angeles when it, the air turned green and you could barely breathe. And a little thing called a catalytic converter took that away like that. In the same way, regulating coal destroyed the London fog. These are things that can be done. You do them in small measures. You do them through technology. But when the government starts to say, we're going to control what kind of car you can drive, we're going to control where you can go, it, your car is going to be tracked so we can tax you for your travel because we won't be able to tax gasoline. I get very suspicious. I get suspicious of anyone trying to get me to panic. Well, yeah, I think that we should be level-headed about this, but I'm glad, yeah, just for our growing population, we have to, we manage our finite resources. So yeah, I would love to see that we can hold on to all of our freedoms while at the same time embracing the new technologies that keep our planet clean. So thank you, Andrew Clavin, for sharing your creative insights and reflections on the importance of storytelling and what it means to be human. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you, Mia. It's been a pleasure. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interviews producers on this episode were Sam Myers and Camila Quintanilla. The Creative Process is produced by Mia Funk. Additional production support by Sophie Garnier. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.